Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. Everyone, you're listening to another episode of Divergent Conversations podcast. I'm your co-host Patrick Nassau, joined today by Dr. Megan Neff and Thomas Henley, who is the host of the Thoughty Audi podcast. So, yes, number one on our uh, podcast. And Megan and I just released on Friday, and the response has been fantastic. Feedback's been fantastic, and we're both overwhelmed as hell. Is that right, Megan? Yeah, that's right. We were talking before on air how we're both it's scatterbrained today. So that'll make for a fun conversation or something. Yeah. And I definitely just like steamrolled through the intro and didn't even let Megan introduce herself. So like, sorry. <laughs> I know. I was like leaning into, but actually. I know. I saw it. <laughs> I saw it. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> so was, we appreciate you being here and um, just making the time. We know you're six hours ahead of me and nine hours ahead of Megan. So, um, and I think we're going to talk about alexithymia today. And I think we're also going to talk about whatever the hell is going on in our lives and making us feel so scattered. So thank you for being here. Of course. Um, I wasn't, um, I think you might've mentioned it, but I wasn't totally aware that I was your first guest, um, on the podcast. So I am, I'm honored very much. So no pressure whatsoever. Um, <laughs> Megan, um, Alexithymia is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. You talk about it often on your Instagram account, uh, Neurodivergent Insights, and you have tons of resources. So I would love for you to start us off with why it feels important, why we're talking about that today. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, trying to pull thoughts together. Go Houston, here we go. Yeah, so I think it's a really relevant topic to autistic and ADHDers particularly just because where we tend to be more impacted by it. Um, so first, just to do my like definition of terms and then go into it. Um, it's actually not a diagnosis. Sometimes people will DM me about like, how do I get diagnosed with this? It's not a diagnosis. It's a personality trait. And it's fairly common. One in 10 people have it. Um, and it's difficulty identifying and describing emotions. So one in 10 people in the general population have it. Among autistic people, it's about 50% or higher. And then among ADHDers, you know, the studies, there's so much variance, but um, I've seen like between 20 to 45%. And then even those who don't have like full threshold, they have more alexithymic traits. And this really makes things like emotion regulation, um, connecting with other people on kind of that deep emotional level a lot more difficult. The other interesting thing about alexithymia is that a lot of things that have been attributed to autism, um, like difficulty with emotion recognition on faces or voice, um, empathy, which autism and empathy is a whole topic. It's huge. All these things, they've done studies. And when they pull out autistic people with alexithymia and autistic people without alexithymia, Autistic people without alexithymia are doing as well as the control group. So a lot of the things that we've said that's an autistic thing is actually that's a severe alexithymia thing. 
So that to me, when I read that, I was like, this explains why so many people aren't getting diagnosed, for one. For two, when a person is autistic with alexithymia, there's some higher support needs around emotional emotional regulation, emotion identification. I actually have alexithymia. Because of my training, I would say I now have pretty mild alexithymia and I've figured out how to adapt to it. Um, But I definitely see how difficulty identifying emotions through my life has led to some hard stuff. So yeah, that's the clinical definition. Um, Thomas, I'm curious to hear you, like you're really interested in this topic. Where did that curiosity come from? I think it's because um, I, I have quite a bit bit of a history with like emotions. Like uh, ever since I was very young, I uh, was pretty much fascinated by neurotypicals. I was kind of doing like the reverse <laughs> autism specialist thing. I had a fascination, fascination with neurotypical people. And um, I remember from sort of early days sort of at school, um, I would look at people around me, people... Um, particularly during like high school, secondary school age. And they would be doing things with no reason or rhyme to why they're doing it, but they just seemed to have something in their brain that that flicked a switch and then they went and did something. I now know that, you know, for example, things like dancing, it's not a a social display that you're like, I'm going to do a social display. It's, um, It's a thing that you do because it feels good and People feel driven to do things that feel good. Um, And I found that really confusing because I used to analyze a lot of the reasons behind a lot of my decision making. And I think it's, um, I was reading a a book recently, I can't remember the reference, but they were talking about how emotions can be quite a big feed into uh, how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, So it could be something as simple as food. You know, you eat something and then you like, uh, no, you you pick in between like a cupcake and like some protein pancakes and you model um, eating both of those in your brain, detects how you feel from eating those in that model and then kind of use your emotions to probably get to the cupcakes. (laughs) Um, So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of depth to it. And a lot of the issues that I had particularly um, in, in secondary school was emotional dysregulation, a lot of mental health difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, but also not really as much of an ability to, uh, notice when my anxiety or my depression was getting worse. And, you know, psychologists, therapists, they give me these anxiety worksheets, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the issue was with that is that you first got to know that you're in, you're anxious. Exactly. To, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about that when I, when I do trainings on this of like, we go from like one or two to 10, Mm. or at least that's our experience. We're not actually doing that, but we're not picking up, you know, that like emotion thermometer, that stress thermometer. We're not picking up the, the subtle increase. And so that's what leads to those big emotion outbursts. Um, They can also look very borderline or bipolar, which is another reason I think we get misdiagnosed. Um, because it's so hard to regulate your emotions if you're not registering you're angry or stressed or anxious till it's out of 10. Yeah, and then society's kind of perceive you um, and not how you're attending to react to things as well. And that inability to regulate 
is so challenging in social situations, but it's challenging in a lot of environments, like in the workplace, for example, like if you don't, if you're unable to identify your emotions, that can lead to a lot of workplace conflict as well. And I think that's why another reason that we see so many neurodiverse people struggling with neurotypical jobs and environments is just, they're not set up to be successful in a lot of ways and they're not set up to be affirmative. It's quite key for like enforcing boundaries and stuff like mm. because a lot of people they kind of get a someone says something that makes them upset or angry they kind of get a bit of an emotional jolt to kind of be like hey actually that's not okay whereas in a lot of cases in in my life and you know from, from talking to other people it seems that we just kind of take it and then we we go away and think about it and come back like a week later a couple of days later mm-hmm. Like, actually, hey, this isn't good. Um, and I think uh-huh. it can sometimes lead a lot of neurotypicals to not really trust trust like our reactions to things in the like the the present. Yeah, that is so well said. It can cause so much relationship confusion because the person with alexithymia, whether you're ADHD, autistic, or neurotypical, like we need that space to process. I think. Um, so reflective emotions is when we're bringing in our prefrontal cortex. Um, I think a lot of us overcompensate for the fact that we're not feeling those more in the moment fleeting emotions, but becoming really good at reflective emotions. But that takes time and space. And often we can't do that in an emotionally charged space. So like if we're having a, for example, emotionally charged conversation with our partner, we're going to have a really hard time accessing our emotions in that moment until we take some space. And especially if our partner is more anxiously attached, that space is going to feel like abandonment. And this is where I see a lot of relationships kind of go off the rails is that, that dance that kicks up around that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you and I are both in the mental health profession, like so I think there's a advanced training that goes on behind the scenes, right? Where we're like, okay, now we're starting to identify these emotions. Now I'm starting to become more familiar with how I'm feeling and experiencing how I'm moving through the world. Not everyone has that uh, luxury and privilege and ability to do. So I think it becomes very murky, very confusing. And that's where you start to see a lot of dissociation and disconnection and that really frustration, isolation, loneliness paradox that kicks in in social environments and I think that is so fucking hard for people when it feels so painful to identify what is really happening in the surface. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, one of one of the best ways that that I've found it to like to like describe what the what's what it what it's like to be alexithymic to neurotypicals is is like a threshold related mm-hmm. condition. Like most people, if if you take like if we put a um, a quantitative number on anxiety levels from like zero to 100, you know, perhaps a lot of neurotypicals, they'd be able to tell um, within the 20 to 50% mm-hmm. range that they are a certain level of anxiety. Whereas when you're autistic and or and you have alexithymia, um, that might be 70, 80, 90%. And a lot of those strategies that we learn to calm ourselves down um i found the most use in like preventative things and like blanket approaches to um solving it well when i was younger and i didn't really understand it and it also led to uh, as you were saying about sort of disassociation 
I actually did a lot of reading about it, and it was something that I noticed even when I was very young. Um, and so I lo looked into that kind of thing, and I was like, hey, I, I have situations in my life where in, in for some reason, um, in the 10, 15 minutes, I, I feel like a completely different person. I feel differently in my body. I perceive the world differently. I behave differently. I must be a different person. Um, and so I looked into um, disassociative identity disorder, and I was like, "Hey, this is actually what's hit, what's happening." Because I couldn't, I couldn't feel the emotion, and I had to like go through and just look at all the science and the terminology and the philosophy behind different emotions, and really try and embed that in order to um, understand it in the in the future. But <laughs> I used to have. Um, like different colors, which obviously the colors were related to emotions, but at that time it just didn't click for me at all. Mm -hmm. I think that captures something really important. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. Like, I don't know what is dissociation, what is alexithymia here, but one thing I notice among autistic people in general is a much more like fragmented view of self. Hmm. And so when you describe that of like looking into DID, like there's a, that's actually, I, I feel like probably pretty common for a lot of autistic people to look into DID or I'm seeing a lot more about plural systems now um, because it is, it can be such a fragmented experience and then we can't access our emotion even more so. Megan, I'm curious about just in your own life, when you're experiencing alexithymia and kind of the identification, like you're mentioning being fragmented, right? You and I have talked about fragmentation a lot and just feeling so, like there's so many pieces here and you can't always identify or connect them and how that really is, you know, showing up these days for you. Um, in terms of like, you build an audience, you build a presence, you, you obviously have such a wonderful reputation. And I know you and I talk off this off the air about like, when you're feeling really heady or like when you're really in that space of teaching and, and researching, it can be disconnecting from how you're experiencing day to day too. Okay. I actually think I feel the most connected when I'm in my head. Um, and that's part of the problem is it's so hard to be in my body, um, which yeah. I've talked about plenty. So when I'm in research flow or writing, I feel like the, the most like myself. It's all the other places I occupy that I'm, you know, and, and that's yeah. right. Like that's actually a really common experience, um, with special interests. We often feel most like ourselves when we're immersed in our special interest. Absolutely. And can access emotions. Like I see that with my clients when we start talking about special interests, there's an animation that pops up. Like we, we access emotions more easily. Thomas, you were about to say something. Yeah, I was just I just find it interesting you're talking about like feeling fragmented because before I uh, came across the concept of alexithymia, um, I, I I did a video and I did like a post on called like my split brain, and mm -hmm. I was basically talking. I, I found this book called uh, I think the Monkey Mind. Yeah, um, yeah, is, yeah, and I, I really or go ahead and explain it though because I I know what you're talking about, but our listeners won't. Yeah, it's like um, basically split, splitting your brain into the 
sort of the higher cognitive kind of um, prefrontal cortex um, you as as a you, that uses in intellectual things and mm-hmm. um, logic and facts and things to dissect and understand your environment. Uh, whereas the monkey mind is the emotional brain, like things related to like the amygdala and um, drives and desires and needs um, that are important to survival. Um, and it was the whole book is kind of about um, framing it as as that as that you you do have kind of these two pulling forces. One is like your willpower and your, I guess, more more human side and the other side is like the emotional kind of monkey side (laughs) but um i found that really interesting and i really i felt like it it was probably one of the first things that i related to um in terms of thinking about my emotions because i did feel for a long time i i just couldn't like facts and dates and um events just seemed to be exhausted like ridiculously hard to connect them in my brain even even if they are apparently clear they don't feel like they the feelings that i have from that event don't feel like they connect with that and so so i'll go a lot of situations where i'm i've perhaps had a really bad experience during the day and then for some reason i'll just be like oh i feel a bit anxious and i feel a bit Hmm. down now why has that happened and obviously I know that something bad's happened in the day, but it just doesn't immediately link. It's like after connect yeah. neural pathways together. <laughs> yeah, it's not an automatic process. It's hmm. like, okay, I've got to analyze. Yeah. Yeah. One thing my when I started therapy like five years ago, one of the things my therapist said to me was like, you are so like analytical or like aware, but almost he, it wasn't a criticism, but it was a curiosity of like, and, and it was it was an interesting moment for me. Like, isn't everyone doing this all day long? Just like analyzing the shit out of their day, trying to figure out um, why am I feeling this way? Like, and that was a really interesting moment for me because I could tell he was struck by like how analytical I was about my experience. Hmm. Would be nice to know what it would be like to move through the world without analyzing every experience and think that could happens to me that would be fantastic um it, it would feel like a i guess maybe like a pressure release in a way but I, I it's just so challenging to move away from that um like i have to analyze everything i'm i'm constantly like you said thomas trying to connect like where's this anxious feeling coming from mm-hmm. oh yeah this thing happened to me today or this thing happened yesterday now it's creating these feelings that i can't always associate together and then ultimately it leaves you a bit confused because you can recognize the somatic sensation in your body of like i'm feeling anxious where is this coming from like why is this feeling so intense right now oh yeah this thing happened six hours ago that should create anxiety but in the moment was not able to to connect the the dots and I think that there is quite a heavy tendency for a, for a, I, I think autistic people, maybe of a neurodivergence as well, but I can only speak from the autistic perspective. Um, that it, it is kind of 
hard to, hard to make those. Oh God, my brain's gone. <laughs> oh, we get it. What what were you say, saying, Patrick? How oh, just connecting those dots, you know, and those associations where yes, yeah, it's gone on me. Sorry, that's okay. I think you know this is this is actually nice to see while we're all sitting here because the three of us mentioned we're all feeling a bit scattered today, and yeah. it's interesting, like we're having a very real experience around this conversation and I can see Megan being very deep in thought when I'm talking and I'm paying attention to that out of my peripheral. <laughs> but, you know, I do think, I think this is a, a there's a paradox for me as a autistic ADHD or where association with emotion and feeling and, and trying to name it and define it versus like, constant sensory seeking and stimulation seeking and like really trying to seek out that intensity as well. And then trying to like connect the dots with intensity seeking to soothe the anxiety in your body. It's really an interesting experience for me. And soccer has been so helpful. Thomas, I know you're, you're really into fitness for that. Probably a, a similar reason. And damn, I totally so like soccer. Frustrating. I know, I know. I was talking to Megan about proprioceptive stim the other day and needing to have my like soul and body crushed back into my body mm-hmm. and how often I feel the need for that. I asked my wife to do that the other day and she looked at me and was like, the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, <laughs> I just need, I just need you to do it. Like, I don't, I'll explain it to you later, but I need you to do that. And I, I think that's a very, very typical experience for me on almost a daily basis. I think that there is a tendency sometimes I remembered what I was going to say. <laughs> I think that t- there is a tendency sometimes with autistic people that we, um, we need to know the reasons for things. And sometimes mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, you don't always need to know, like it, it could be useful in some cases to know why you're feeling a certain way. And sometimes it might just be, you know, good to just chalk it up to possible stresses like mental health or um sort of workplace things being pre- too productive not getting enough rest and doing your special interests um and i think some sometimes um get getting in my head about how i'm feeling um stops me from like focusing on other things that i'm doing that are helping with with my stress um, and my emotions. So unless I'm feeling sort of a, a deep aching issue or that I'm, you know, it's perhaps related to a relationship or a friendship, or if I'm having quite bad mental health um, crises or, or lows, then it's useful for me to kind of to go through and unpick that. Um so there's that. And I also think um, that creates our autism from the inside. Um, we were talking about Alexa Fimer on my podcast, and um, he was saying that there can be a, a quite a large burden for using your like higher cognitive brain to, to do okay. things that are quite simple or quick or emotional-based, like social communication. So it really made me kind of think about you know what when i'm putting like 
how much effort am I putting into situations that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, that kind of mentality. I really like how you're balancing kind of the autistic need to know, because I I agree that's super regulating when I can pinpoint to like, oh, this is why I'm feeling that way. It just like calms. I say it calms my amygdala down. It just calms everything down. But balancing that with it. What'd you say? Fix it at the core. Yes. Yes. Fix the reason and everything will be okay. It's like when you get really stressed about finishing a task on your computer and the programs aren't working, it's like really need to get that done and then you'll be okay. Whereas sometimes well i think it's soothing partly because it just reduces uncertainty like it's like oh okay i I can track why i'm feeling that way um but what i really like is how you balance it with acceptance for me um in my training to become a psychologist i i probably did a bulk of my training in a mode of therapy called acceptance commitment therapy or act which is all about kind of accepting our emotions it doesn't mean we have to like them, but accepting they exist and then asking, okay, but how do I continue to move toward what matters to me to move toward my values? And that was probably one of the best things for my anxiety was learning an element of acceptance. It was, yes, sometimes I can locate like, okay, my routine's off this. That's why I'm anxious today. Other times I can't. And it is about that. Okay, how am I gonna hold this and live with this and continue to move toward what matters to me and not let it completely derail my day? Mm. It's prioritization, I think. Yeah. But where you put your energy in. So Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a great point, Thomas, about that because I do think a lot of autistic people are are using a ton of cognitive energy to to really figure out meaning uh behind everything. And it, it can just be, it's it just unbelievably exhausted. And Megan, you and I have talked about like replenishing and, and trying to like recharging, being able to soothe. But sometimes it's really challenging to replenish that energy and, and then you're playing catch up all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why so many of us are just going through the world feeling really, really exhausted all the time. And I like your example, Megan, with acceptance and commitment therapy. I've been, you and I have talked about like, IFS as well, internal family systems. And that has been very helpful for me to have like parts work because I can't always identify what's happening in the moment or what I'm experiencing or how I'm feeling. And if we're getting really cognitive, I really can't identify a thing. But if I can break it into parts, like a part of me is feeling overwhelmed and it's okay for that to show up and I'm going to accept that. And I don't need to find out the meaning of why I just need to accept that it exists. And there are other parts of me that are that are feeling okay or feeling more grounded. And it's been pretty, pretty remarkably life-changing if I'm being really honest about it. Like that work has been so, uh, so tremendously supportive in the last two years. I think it was um, really important to mention that the aspect to like the, the certainty around things, because I feel like it's, it's, it's kind of weird because if you, if you study neurotypicals like I have and just, just got this like so obsessed with understanding what's going on in their brains, I think there's a lot of situations where we give ourselves a hard time for not understanding certain things. Like neurotypicals tend to talk a lot about things like read the room and understand um, the hidden meaning and under, under, understand things just from the flow of the conversation. But from my experience, 
particularly in the workplace or within friend groups, a lot of people that you talk to individually after those big sort of group conversations, they don't really, they have, they, they have completely different ideas of what's gone on. And like, I felt like, you know, we do have that drive to, to, to try and find that certainty out specifically like around emotions and, and social things, which are inherently so uncertain and emotional. Um, it can be kind of hard for us and it's not, it's kind of one of those things that I think in a lot of neurotypicals, they go with what they feel from the situation. And then that's the truth. But compare and contrast each person in a certain group conversation. It's completely different. Um, it's just that we like to know exactly what happened and exactly what people are wanting and exactly what they're trying to say. <laughs> There's a TV show called The Affair. I don't know if either of you have watched it, but I've found it so interesting because and i think there's maybe a few shows that do this but they like really lean into it It, the first season at least where you see this exact same episode for but from different people's perspectives and so like the they'll be the characters will be wearing different clothes and different people's memories and it's just Mm. so interesting that idea of, of subjectivity of the everyone's experience of the same conversation and then how it encodes in memory is wildly different, which is frankly terrifying for me as someone who (laughs) is anchored in like facts and logic of like, how did you get that from this conversation? Um, But brains are weird. And the way we experience something is so heavily filtered by our past experiences, our beliefs, our biases. Um, It's just, it's wild. And terrifying. Definitely agree. Like all of us are going to walk away from this 40 minutes we've spent together with different memories, different experiences. And probably our own different, yeah, exactly. Different perspectives and interpretations, right? Because I'm the type of person who will walk away and analyze like, was that a good conversation? Did it feel meaningful? Was that like, did I show up the way I wanted to show up? All of those things will be running through my mind the rest of the day, so... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Brains are weird. It's just, I'll actually be having similar questions. I'll also be like, why was I so foggy during that conversation? What was happening? What was like, I'll also be thinking about like the relational dynamics, but also like, will that be it? Was that cohesive enough for a podcast? Was that, was that a meaningful experience for Thomas? Was that worth his time to have him on? Yeah. 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 I can confirm for an air of certainty that it's a meaningful experience. I love chatting to you. and. It's really nice to chat to you, Patrick. Thank you. Is this our awkward transition to my time? Because that's how I'm reading the internet. Right now. I don't know how you guys wrap things up, so I... We don't know. So, do we want to say? Do we want to say anything about where to find Thomas's work and then Absolutely. wrap up? Absolutely. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah, if you'd love to share with the audience where they can find your what you're doing in the world and what you're putting out there. Sure. Um, you can find my podcast, the Forty Audio Podcast, on YouTube, Spotify, any of the podcasting streaming services, or you can check out my Instagram page at Thomas Henley UK, where I make daily posts and about two reels a day, autism related. Your Instagram yes. account is awesome. I mean, I found your stuff because Megan was on your podcast and shared some of that and was watching in really, really cool stuff. A lot of information, a lot of humor through name, which I really enjoy and a lot of really cool perspectives. So really appreciate 
just being able to have this time together and uh, spend the last 40 minutes talking about all of this. Thank you very much, Patrick. I appreciate that. To everyone who is listening to the Divergent Conversation podcast, new episodes are out every single Friday on all major podcast platforms like download, subscribe, share, and goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.